Good evening. God has gathered us together to proclaim his praise. Amen? Amen. There are two things that you need to know. First, the speaker of the evening is Dr. Marty Butler. That says it all. Don't have to say any more. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed want to let you know that we believe you are great and mighty. You are an awesome God, and you are the God who has, through your Son, Jesus Christ, redeemed us. And for that, we shall be eternally grateful. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of hope and health and happiness that most of us have most days. And on those days when we don't have those things, keep us mindful of the fact that you are the great and mighty God. We exalt your name this evening, our Father, and we bring to you our petitions. You know the kinds of things that are troubling us, those things that worry us and concern us, family matters, financial matters, schooling, work, whatever they may be. We lay them before you tonight, and we ask that your grace would be with them. But we realize, Lord, that our world is much larger than our own families and even Nazarene Bible College and Colorado Springs. For there's a vast world out there that demands your attention every moment. And we pray for our world. And we ask that tonight you would be with our soldiers who are standing in harm's way to protect us. We ask that you would be with them and guide and direct them. And bless all of those families who nervously stand by waiting for their return. For those who are sick and those who are uh, in different ways experiencing tough days, we commit those things to you. And now, Father, in this service, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. And all that we do and say, may it lift you up. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Someone once told me that I was obsessed with the fact that I'm getting older. I don't know, that may be true. After all, I am nearly four years on the plus side of 50, and everyone knows that things begin deteriorating at 50. It's just one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, from 50 to Rogaine for hair loss. Metamucil for irregularity. Geritol for iron deficiency anemia. Gincoba tablets for memory loss. And Viagra for, well, let's not go there. A look at the calendar would reveal to me that I've been married to my wife who's with us tonight for 34 years. And we have a son who will turn 28 this fall. We're expecting our first grandchild in August and I'm in the market for one of those sweatshirts that says, World's Greatest Grandpa. So some days I'm feeling old and I particularly feel old when I think about this date. May the 4th. 
For when Chaplain Like asked me to preach for this service several months ago, I was immediately aware that May 4th is a red-letter day for me. Thirty-eight years ago today, now 38 years ago, that's longer than some of you have been on earth. But 38 years ago today, at 15 years of age, I preached my very first sermon. On Sunday night, May 1st, 1966, I knelt at the altar of prayer in a small Nazarene church and wrestled with God about a call to ministry. And I arose from that place of prayer and announced to that crowd that Sunday night, a crowd of probably no more than 15 or 20 people, that God had called me to preach. And the pastor said, that's good news, you'll preach Wednesday night. <laughs> what in the world was he thinking? So I thought on this 38th anniversary that I'd drag out that sermon and preach it for you. Here it is. <laughs> Those are the actual notes from that sermon. It was a topical sermon entitled, Now That We Are Christians. The pastor loaned me his Thompson Chain Reference Bible, and that was from which I prepared the message, the only resource I had that I recall. It was a topical sermon about the characteristics of the Christian life, and I list some of them here. There was no actual text, few notes, as you can see, very little truth, but lots of enthusiasm. Anyone who preached in Ohio in the 1960s preached with lots of enthusiasm. When I finished the sermon, my mother told me that it lasted about 20 minutes. Throughout the message, I quoted from four Old Testament passages. And as I began to research those passages in preparation for renewing that sermon for you tonight, I discovered that I misquoted one and misinterpreted the other three. <laughs> so I figured it really wasn't going to do any of us any good for me to re-preach to you that obviously unsermonic sermon. So instead, I chose one of those Old Testament passages and declared that I was going to do the best I could to exegete it correctly this time, 38 years later. This time with something more than the Thompson Chain Reference Bible as my only resource. And so perhaps the only connection you'll find tonight between that sermon 38 years ago and this sermon tonight is that both will have lasted about 20 minutes. As we began the service, you heard read for you the 92nd Psalm. It's a worship psalm sung in the synagogue at the time of the drink offering, right after the sacrifice of the first lamb, accompanied by ancient versions of ten stringed guitars and harps. The congregation sang out their praise to God. We're indebted to our Jewish heritage for the important place 
music plays in our worship. It would be hard to imagine Christian worship today without music, wouldn't it? So I want us to spend a few minutes tonight looking at this worship song, this song of praise for the Lord's goodness, as the New American Standard Bible calls it, and that becomes the title of tonight's message, A Song of Praise for the Lord's Goodness. The first thing this passage instructs us is that we should give God praise. Listen to the first four verses. It is good to praise the Lord, Psalm 92, and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. Ever since Moses climbed down from Mount Sinai with the commandments of God under his arm, humankind has continued to query about the question, what constitutes appropriate work on the Sabbath? Well, of this we can be sure. The most appropriate work we can do on the Sabbath, and any other day for that matter, is to give God praise. But sometimes we misunderstand praise because we have in our minds our own stereotypes about what praise means. For some people my age and older, Praise has been relegated to a spectator sport. They see their assignment as going to church and observing the professional praisers on the platform. They watch what they do and listen carefully to what they say, and they pass judgment upon what they do and say, much like the judges do the gymnasts at the Olympics. And when they go to lunch, the conversation goes something like this. What did you think of that opening set of music? And the reply is, I didn't like it very much. It was too loud, and we repeated those lines too often, and those drums are driving me crazy. I'll give it a 7.5. Well, what about the offertory? Oh, I always love to hear Mary sing, and I was really looking forward to her song this morning, but I didn't think she was right on as much as she has been in the past. And besides, on the third verse, she kind of got choked up and lost her place in the music, so I'll give her an 8.0. Well, how did you feel about the sermon? Oh, that always comes up at lunch, my friend. Sometimes it actually does come up at lunch, my friends. <laughs> the sermon. I have no idea where the pastor was going this morning. He was just out there in the woods somewhere. And after about 15 minutes, I just shut him down. I'd give him a 4.5. So some people see their job as being those who pass judgment upon their professional worshipers. But others, younger than am I, or people who have come into the church since the 1990s, they have their own stereotype about what praise means. They're convinced that the only way to praise God is with 
upbeat music, worship bands, and arms lifted in the air. Now there's nothing wrong with upbeat music, worship bands, and arms lifted in the air, but that's not the only way to praise God. We can praise God in our silence, something we know nothing much about in church today. And an a cappella rendition of holy, holy, holy can be just as much a statement of praise to God as the latest worship chorus sung to a soundtrack. So some people have that misconception about praise. And still others have confused praise with exalting ourselves. Have you noticed that a lot of the contemporary worship songs of this generation and the gospel songs of my generation talk a lot more about me and I than they do about God? My friends, our praise to God should not fall victim to any of those kinds of stereotypes. Praise instead seeks to glorify God. And the essence of praise is giving thanks. And though the expressions of praise may differ by personality and geography and age group, all praise should glorify God. We praise Him, verse 2 tells us, because of His love and faithfulness to us. The Hebrew word there is hesed, God's divine, steadfast, unmerited, grace-filled love toward us. Our praise should not be subject to the mood of the moment, but instead our praise should always be given to God. To know God is to love God. To love God is to praise God. And the person who praises God never tires of singing that song. Give God praise. But secondly, I think this passage teaches us that we need to give God a break. Listen to verses 5 through 9. How great are your works, O Lord! How profound your thoughts! The senseless man does not know, fools do not understand, that though the wicked spring up like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. For surely your enemies, O Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. On the television news show 2020, John Stossel often has a segment entitled, Give Me a Break. As an investigative reporter, he looks into different situations and he finds one that really frustrates him because it just seems to be so absurd. He says, give me a break. Well, this passage conjures up those kinds of thoughts in me, in my mind. We need to give God a break. Have you noticed that God gets blamed for an awful lot of things? According to some, 
It was God who crashed those planes into those towers to teach America a lesson on humility. According to the insurance industry, acts of nature are called acts of God. If you look in the fine print of your casualty insurance policy, you may find that it says your policy does not cover acts of God like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods. All of those nasty bad things are acts of God, the insurance industry says. And some suggest that all sickness and financial duress that you may have been going through are God's way of refining you by fire. And do all of those above things I say to you tonight, give God a break. God cannot be blamed for all of the evil things that occur in a fallen world. Some rail on God because he doesn't do something about the evil around us. Why doesn't God do something about that war in Iraq? Why didn't God do something when the president of Tycho raped and pillaged millions of dollars from that firm to throw a birthday party for his wife while the average stockholder out there was losing his shirt on Tycho's stock? Why didn't God do something? To which I respond, give God a break. Listen to verses 5 and 6 again. How great are your works, O Lord! How profound your thoughts! The senseless man does not know. Fools do not understand. We need to give God a break. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. Though the wicked spring up like the grass and all evildoers flourish, the psalmist tells us in verse 17, 7, they will be forever destroyed. Give God a break. He neither causes evil nor condones evil. But he does overcome it. For surely your enemies, O Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. I fear too many of us Christians have forgotten that we know the rest of the story. We have forgotten that we've read the final chapter. We've forgotten that in the end, God and good, and hope, and peace, and faith, and right, win. In the meantime, give God a break. This passage teaches us then that we need to give God praise and give God a break. But thirdly, this passage teaches us that we need to Give God some credit. Verses 10 through 15. You have exalted my strength like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured upon me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. 
planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no wickedness in him. Although some people are guilty of blaming God for things he does not do, far too many of us are guilty of failing to give God credit for the things he does do. Some of you have worked so long and studied so hard and planned so well that it would be easy for you to think, I'm the reason behind my GPA. I'm the reason my children are in the kingdom. I'm the reason we're able to pay our bills. I'm the reason that things are going well in my life. And to you, I want to say, give God the credit. It is God who gives us the strength of an ox and anoints our head with oil in verse 10. It is God who defeats our adversaries in verse 11. It is God who causes the righteous to flourish like the palm trees and the cedars of Lebanon in verse 12. It is God who has planted us in his garden in verse 13. And it is God who enables old men to still be fruitful in verse 14, even if they do take Metamucil and Geritol. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. It's time, my friends, we all remembered to give God credit. But you ask, do the righteous really flourish like the great palms in the desert and the great cedars of Lebanon that were used to construct Solomon's temple? Do good people really win? If so, what about terrorism? What about starving children? What about those hundreds of soldiers who have lost their lives in Iraq? What about the fact that I sold everything and moved to Colorado Springs, and ever since I've been here, my kids' allergies have been going crazy? I hate my job, and English, too, is giving me fits. Well, to you tonight, I don't mean to sound trite. I don't mean to oversimplify complex and difficult issues. But I really have nothing more to say to you than the psalmist said in this 92nd Psalm. In the midst of living your life at its best, and at its worst, give God praise, give God a break, and give God the credit.
Now, if the psalmist could pen these words a thousand years before Calvary, how much more should we who have met the Messiah, how much more should we who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, how much more should we who knows how the book ends, give God praise, give God a break, and give God credit. For our benediction this evening, I want us to listen to that 15th verse of this 92nd Psalm. And I want you to leave here with these words ringing in your ears, and hopefully this week ringing in your heart. The Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no wickedness in him. Go in God's peace.